Thursday, April 14th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua for in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, the UN Secretary General says a humanitarian ceasefire in Ukraine does not seem possible at the moment. The war is supercharging a three-dimensional crisis, food, energy, and finance, that is pummeling some of the world's most vulnerable people, countries, and economies. Authorities arrest a man wanted in an attack on a subway train in New York that left 10 people wounded. That was a tip that was phoned in from a local citizen who spotted him, the suspect Frank R. James, in a local McDonald's in the East Village on 6th Street and 1st Avenue. And New Zealand reopens its borders after more than two years of COVID-19 isolation. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said on Wednesday a humanitarian ceasefire in Ukraine does not seem possible at the moment. He said poor countries face economic ruin from simultaneous crisis of food, energy and finance due to supply disruptions caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. World commodity prices have hit records hurting countries that rely on imports, Guterres said, up to 1.7 billion people, a third already living in poverty, have been left, quote, highly exposed, unquote, to food, energy and finance disruptions, which are triggering increases in poverty and hunger. The war is supercharging a three-dimensional crisis, food, energy and finance, that is pummeling some of the world's most vulnerable people, countries and economies. And all this comes at a time when developing countries are already struggling with the slate of challenges not of their making. The COVID-19 pandemic, climate change, and the lack of access to adequate resources to finance the recovery in the context of persistent and growing inequalities. We are now facing a perfect storm that threatens to devastate the economies of many developing countries. Above all, this war must end. The people of Ukraine cannot bear the violence being inflicted on them, and the most vulnerable people around the world cannot become collateral damage in yet another disaster for which they bear no responsibility. We need to silence the guns and accelerate negotiations towards peace now for the people of Ukraine, for the people of the region, and for the people of the world. That's UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. For US President Joe Biden, the pain Americans are feeling in their pocketbooks comes down to an increasingly repeated slogan, quote, Putin's prize hike, unquote. For more than a month now, his administration has tried to blame rising prices on the Russian president's invasion of Ukraine. But analysts say the truth is a little more complicated. VOA's White House correspondent Anita Powell reports from Washington. Since the war in Ukraine began nearly seven weeks ago, prices are rising, and not just for Americans. The price of everything, from gas to fertilizer to food, is rising across the globe in countries as far from the conflict as Morocco, Brazil, and India. President Joe Biden has minted his own slogan to explain it, the Putin price hike. I'm doing everything within my power by executive orders to bring down the price and address the Putin price hike. In fact, we've already made progress since March inflation data was collected. Your family budget, your ability to fill up your tank, none of it should hinge on whether a dictator declares war and commits genocide a half a world away. During a visit to Iowa Tuesday, he raised the percentage of ethanol that can be blended into gasoline, a move that will tamp down gas prices, but at a risk of creating more smog. 
Russia's invasion of Ukraine has seen a rise in global food commodity prices, with the United Nations Food Agency saying the war has driven rises in wheat, maize, and vegetable oil. But economists also cite a broader, longer trend of rising commodity prices, policy support for inflation, the release of pent-up demand, and disruptions to the supply chain. Conservative analysts say Putin is not the sole culprit, or even the biggest one. E.J. Anthony is a research fellow at the Center for Data Analysis at the Conservative Heritage Foundation. This happened long before Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So the administration went from saying there is no inflation to then saying, well, there's inflation, but it's transitory, so don't worry about it. And then inflation became a high-class problem. And then finally, inflation was good. Now they have flipped the script yet again. Not only is inflation bad, but now it's not their fault. Now it's Putin's fault. I estimate that about eight percentage points of the 8.5 percentage point gain we've seen over the last year has nothing to do with the invasion of Ukraine. That is only a recent phenomenon, and it does not explain the run-up in prices, particularly energy prices, from before the invasion. Others say Putin deserves a bigger share of the blame. William Reinsch of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Had there been no war, uh, I think you could argue that... Uh, uh, the prices would have peaked and begun to decline uh, with the war. Yes, uh, it is a Putin price hike. I think there's no question about it. Uh, as I said before, you know, he didn't start all this, started way before the war, but he's made everything worse, uh, and he deserves a good share of the blame for that. Russia's economy, too, has been hard hit by the waves of sanctions imposed by the U.S. and NATO allies. The nation's central bank has propped up the ruble by dramatically raising interest rates and imposing other controls. Anita Powell, VOA News, Washington. Authorities on Wednesday arrested the man suspected of setting off smoke bombs and shooting 10 passengers in a New York subway car, capping a manhunt that had renewed fears of violence in the city's transit system. New York's police commissioner, Kechan Sewell, said the suspect, Frank James, was arrested following a 30-hour search. Officials say he faces a federal charge of violating a law prohibiting attacks on mass transit and, if convicted, faces life in prison. Authorities were examining social media videos in which the 62-year-old decried the United States as a racist place awashing violence and railed against New York City's mayor. For more, I spoke with VOA's Trina Train on how the authorities tracked down the suspect. That was a tip that was phoned in from a local citizen who spotted him, the suspect Frank R. James, in a local McDonald's in the East Village on 6th Street and 1st Avenue. And so police followed up uh, to that McDonald's location, uh, did not see him there, continued to stay in the area and apprehended him a couple blocks away on 8th Street and 1st Avenue in the East Village neighborhood of Manhattan. Prior to now, there was tension in the city. What is the mood now that this guy has been arrested. I think it's safe to say that everyone is breathing a sigh of relief. Yesterday's chaos and was just so rattling so many nerves of um, commuters and New Yorkers all around the city. Today, it was um, definitely a lot of attention and, and heightened awareness for personal safety as New Yorkers went back into their routines. But uh, definitely a sigh of relief, I think, as more and more people are finding out the suspect is apprehended. There was heightened security on the uh, subway and in and around the city. Is that still in force? Yes, that is in place. And Mayor Adams has promised to double the uh, number of cops who are patrolling New York City subways 
no definitive dates in, in terms of how that plays out, but you definitely saw a larger presence today, and especially in the neighborhood where uh, this incident took place. Is this a lone wolf attack, or are the authorities still searching for other suspects? So far, it looks like James acted alone. There are no indications of any accomplice uh, who aided him. He essentially rented a uh, U-Haul truck from a location in Philadelphia, and keys to that truck were found on the subway train car after he had fled the scene, and they tie back to um, addresses in, in Philadelphia and in Wisconsin. But so far, it looks like he acted alone. And what happens now? That is still uh, being determined right now. Authorities are saying it's still very early, early days in the investigation. They're continuing to look for any additional information and evidence on security cameras. What unfortunately happened was that the security cameras at that particular station in Brooklyn were not functioning at the time. So they really did scour uh, overnight all of the surrounding cameras from surrounding stations also took to social media to see what videos had been uploaded by um, citizens and eyewitnesses. Um, this apprehension was really done in large part because of social media videos and eyewitness accounts that were posted. That's VOA's Trina Train speaking with me from New York. The United Nations warns a record 7.74 million people or two-thirds of South Sudan's population are likely to face hunger during this year's lean season between May and July. This is the dangerous period between planting and harvesting when food stocks are at their lowest. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Among the millions at risk of hunger are an estimated 87,000 people who will face catastrophic levels of acute food insecurity during the lean period. A UN analysis of the food situation in South Sudan released last week warns many of these people will likely die of starvation. This, says the UN Food and Agriculture Organization representative in South Sudan, Mesha Kamalo, is because they will have run out of coping options to feed themselves and their families. That can only be re remedied by urgent and sustained humanitarian assistance in order to save lives and to re-establish livelihood so that it can see them through the next harvest season. Speaking from the capital, Juba, Malo says among those most at risk are some 1.34 million severely malnourished children. He says 676,000 pregnant and lactating women also are expected to be malnourished this year and in need of special nutritional treatment. The key drivers of food insecurity and extreme hunger in South Sudan include climate shocks. The country has experienced three consecutive years of heavy flooding interspersed with periods of drought. This has badly impacted people's ability to cultivate their land and prevent loss of livestock. Malo says ongoing conflict, high food prices, and poor access to basic services also have contributed to the dire situation in the country. This has been compounded by the low crop production and uh, livestock diseases that have continued to deplete the household coping strategies because of the protracted crisis that have shrunk the income opportunities available in the country. 
At the heart of this crisis, Malo says, is the lack of peace. South Sudan endured a civil war that officially ended a few years ago, but parts of the country remained racked with violence. The FAO representative says investing in peace will pay huge dividends. It would, he notes, provide people with the space and time to build the resilience needed to prevent households from falling back into a state of severe hunger. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. In other news, the Biden administration has announced it will extend through May 3rd the nationwide mask requirements for airplanes and public transit as it monitors an uptake in COVID-19 cases. The order was set to expire April 18th, but the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on Wednesday extended it by two weeks. The administration had been hoping to roll out a more flexible masking strategy this week to replace the nationwide requirement. In a statement Wednesday, the CDC said it will take the time to, quote, assess the impact the rise of cases has on severe diseases, including hospitalizations and deaths, and healthcare system capacity, unquote. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedwafo in Washington. With the European Union pledging to end its dependence on Russian gas, Turkey is positioning itself as a key bridge to alternative energy supplies from other nations. Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul. Turkey is a meeting point between Europe and the energy-rich Middle East. With its vast infrastructure of gas pipelines already linked to the European gas grid, Turkey believes it can play a crucial role in ending EU dependency on Russian gas. Ilno Cevik is a senior advisor to the Turkish president. This Ukraine situation has created a serious energy problem for Europe. Uh, maybe the eastern Mediterranean nat- natural gas flow to Europe through Turkey could be a remedy, could be an alternative to the Russian natural gas. Uh, so... Uh, These are all uh, interesting issues that the two sides will be discussing. In the eastern Mediterranean, Israel has vast, recently discovered gas reserves. Turkey is proposing a pipeline from Israel to link up with the Turkish grid to supply Europe. Last month's visit to Ankara by the Israeli president included discussions on energy cooperation. Mithat Rende is a former Turkish ambassador to Qatar and now an energy industry consultant. It's an important uh, project uh, to connect Israeli gas and the East Med gas uh, with the Turkish national grid and from the Turkish national grid or TANAP to send this gas to Europe. It is not that easy, but it is possible to realize this project uh, if, if it is considered to be a joint uh, effort by Turkey, Israel and the European Union. Turkish and Israeli energy ministers are scheduled to meet in Jerusalem later this month. But relations between Turkey and Israel have been strained and doubts remain whether Israel is ready to trust Turkey enough to reach significant energy deals. Washington, meanwhile, strongly supports plans for a Turkish-Israeli gas pipeline, say analysts. Galia Lindenstrauss is an analyst at the Institute for National Security Studies, a research organization in Tel Aviv. 
with regard to again uh, pushing Israel and Turkey together, this is uh, of course uh, a U.S. interest that uh, pro-Western actors will will cooperate in in, in the region. Uh, again, with regard to energy, I am less optimistic that uh, Israeli gas will one day go go through Turkey. I think the other option of Egypt is a more viable option nowadays. Gas from the semi-autonomous Iraqi Kurdish region could be another option to supply Europe. Aydin Seljan, a former Turkish consul general in Kurdistan, says arrangements are already in place to facilitate the export of gas from the region. Iraqi Kurdistan gas is ready and the distance is very short from the fields uh, to the uh, Turkish grid. Now is the time. The political will is there. The context is favorable. Uh, why not? Observers see last month's rocket strikes on Erbil, blamed on Iran, as a warning by Tehran against the deal. Baghdad would also need to give its blessings to any agreement, meaning there is still some work to do before any deals are reached to cement the new role that Turkey wants to assume. Dorian Jones for VOA News, Istanbul. New Zealand is reopening its international borders to vaccinated travelers from Australia Tuesday after more than two years of COVID-19 isolation. New Zealand has had some of the world's toughest virus control measures. Also, New Zealand's Agriculture Minister, Damian O'Connor, said starting Tuesday, there will be exemptions of some overseas farm workers to help ease labor shortages. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports. Under a staged reopening of its borders, Australian citizens and permanent residents, along with some temporary workers and students from anywhere in the world, are now allowed into New Zealand. They must have received two doses of a COVID-19 vaccination and take a coronavirus test when they arrive. Vaccinated visitors from visa waiver countries, including the United States and Britain, will be permitted to travel to New Zealand on May 1. Also starting Tuesday, exceptions are being made to boost the country's agricultural workforce. They allow for more than 1,500 experienced overseas staff from the Philippines and other countries to travel to New Zealand for jobs in the dairy, meat processing and forestry sectors. Chris Lewis, a spokesperson for the Federated Farmers Organisation, a farmer advocacy group, told Radio New Zealand that the changes will help livestock producers when the calving season begins in July. It's a welcome announcement. We've been advocating for this for a long, long time, asking for more international staff. So, yeah, we're very pleased, but we've just got to get them in before calving starts. That's the key for us. New Zealand shut its international borders in March 2020 as the COVID-19 pandemic spread. The country has remained closed, except for a short-lived travel bubble that allowed travel between Australia and New Zealand that started in April 2021, but was suspended in July 2021 because of the spread of the Delta variant. Health experts say tough coronavirus measures, including strict lockdowns, have helped to keep infections and fatalities low. But the Omicron variant has been rampant and the authorities have conceded that it's time to dismantle New Zealand's so-called COVID-19 fortress. The government in Wellington expects international borders to be fully reopened to all travellers in October.
New Zealand has recorded about 500 deaths and 786,000 coronavirus infections since the pandemic began, according to official government data. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. Hi, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and a panel of journalists as we discuss the top stories of the week, including the war in Ukraine and sanctions on Russia are causing even more stress in an already strained global supply chain brought on by the pandemic. We'll discuss what this means for consumers and their wallets around the world. Join us for Issues in the News this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. This is Science in a Minute. Astronomers Pedro Bernardinelli and Gary Bernstein were going through some archival images from the Dark Energy Survey when they discovered Comet C-2014-UN-271 in 2014. Recent observations with the Hubble Space Telescope revealed that the nucleus or head of the comet is the largest to be found to date. Scientists say it has a diameter of about 129 kilometers. A comet's nucleus measuring 96 kilometers across had been the biggest until this discovery. The comet C-2014-UN-271 is currently 3.22 billion kilometers away and is traveling toward the sun at a speed of 35,000 kilometers per hour. But have no fear, scientists say it won't get any closer than 1.6 billion kilometers from the sun. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. How can the world hold Russia accountable for possible war crimes in Ukraine? Forensic evidence of war crimes in the cities of Bucha and Kramatorsk and elsewhere abounds. On this edition of the program, two distinguished experts analyze war crimes allegations and why, despite the fact that indictments are unlikely to bring Russian war criminals to justice, it's important to persevere. That's Encounter this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. international edition on the voice of america on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at vonews.com until next time i am chinedo in washington wishing you a great day next an editorial reflecting the views of the united states government The United States is concerned over growing tensions in South Sudan, including recent clashes between the South Sudan People's Defense Forces and the Sudan People's Liberation Army Movement in Opposition, or SPLMIO, in Upper Nile State. Former rivals President Salva Kiir and his vice president, Rik Makar, have struggled to enforce a peace agreement signed in 2018 to end a five-year civil war. State Department spokesperson Ned Price called on both sides to observe fully their obligations under the existing peace agreement. The SPLMIO announced its withdrawal from a body overseeing the peace process over unprovoked attacks on its bases by its peace partner. Spokesperson Price called on the SPLMIO to immediately reverse this decision. At the same time, he said, ceasefire monitoring bodies must investigate the recent violence and hold perpetrators responsible. 
The United States calls on President Kiir and First Vice President Makar to de-escalate tensions, resume implementation of key long-delayed provisions of the revitalized peace agreement, including taking the necessary steps to establish an inclusive process to draft a new constitution, to establish necessary electoral legislation and mechanisms, and to respect the freedoms of expression, association, and peaceful assembly. Regional states and institutions, namely the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, need to take swift action to lower tensions and put the peace process back on track. All sides bear responsibility for the deteriorating situation, declared spokesperson Price. Neither President Kiir nor First Vice President Makar have made good faith efforts to implement the provisions of the revitalized peace agreement, and both have resisted serious attempts to move South Sudan towards the peace, security, and prosperity the South Sudanese people continue to desire. The United States calls on all members of the revitalized transitional government of national unity to take the actions necessary to be seen as credible in the eyes of the South Sudanese people, starting with full adherence to and implementation of the 2018 peace agreement. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Washington!